My name is Lene McClellan, and I'm a salon owner in Chelsea, Michigan, and the creator of Radioactive. I've been inspired by the people I get to talk to every day to create a platform for those in and around our community to tell their stories, share what's important to them, and help us uncover what makes us human. Visit RadioactiveChelsea.com to see how you can get involved. Hello, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. This marks my sixth episode of Radioactive Chelsea. I decided I'm going to declare this the end of my first season of episodes and take December off for the holidays. I'm going to be coming back in January, guns a-blazing, with a new approach to Radioactive Chelsea. So I hope you listen. This episode is going to be a little different. I'm going to share with you my life-altering story, and that is of the birth of my son. Oliver is now three years old. My idea to talk about my pregnancy started with a blog, and then I realized I definitely didn't want to keep up a blog. So I give you a one-and-done synopsis of my experience while pregnant. And I'm doing this not as a memoir, not as a journal entry or anything of that sort, but more of a warning of what is to expect for those who are like me. As a happily married, previously happily childless, career-driven woman, I was quite blindsided by what was ahead. I knew I didn't want to be a part of the mom club. That's part of the reason why I was so happy childless. I figured having a kid turned you into a crazy, overcautious, boring homemaker with no life and plenty of drama. Also, having a kid was completely unfathomable, as my hormones are totally out of whack and we just figured kids weren't an option anyways. So as a preface and a warning, if you are one of those women who love, love, love being pregnant and it's your duty in life to have children, then maybe this isn't for you. I may be a bit offensive towards that lifestyle or maybe a little too honest about my approach. I was just a few weeks pregnant when my husband Scott and I went to Chicago to visit our friends Andrew and Kat. This is where I had to learn what a non-alcoholic drink was. Pretty much every single one of my friends are married or together with someone with no intention of having children. This means I've barely been around any pregnant people at this point have hardly any mom friends, and I have never had a reason to not drink. Usually when I find out people are pregnant, I pretty much stop being friends with them because it doesn't correlate with my lifestyle. Also, children are disgusting and annoying. So, as per the usual, we got dinner at fun bars, opened bottles of wine, brewed some beer, and I was trying not to turtle up and hide in bed for the fear of being lame. Andrew said something to me that was extremely enlightening. Now you have to learn to drink non-alcoholic drinks. And I thought, what the hell is a non-alcoholic drink? Water? There's actually a lot, and I've never ordered anything like that before. But there are fun smoothies and teas, version mixed drinks, other great things that helped me still feel like I was an adult while around friends. Not to mention how cheap not drinking was, I decided to splurge more on my food. Solid trade-off. Andrew and Kat and my sister Julia were pretty much the only ones who knew I was pregnant until about May. I was four months before giving birth, essentially. During this time and well into the heat of the summer, I completely isolated myself from anything social. 
Scott went on a trip with all of his friends, which I usually go to but opted to skip that year. He would call me and tell me how drunk he was and how far he hiked and how great the hot tub was and who puked over the railing. He wasn't trying to be a dick. He was trying to include me. You know how people are. They don't get it until they get it. And he didn't get it yet. And truthfully, I didn't get it either. Like I mentioned before, I ran away from pregnant people and moms. I had no pregnant or mom friends because I am a bad friend. Also, pregnant people and moms are completely unrelatable. But mostly I ran away because I'm terrified and I completely shut out anyone who has anything to do with having children. And I'll touch on that later. So my thought was, why would anyone want to hang out with me? I won't bother anyone with my pregnant ass and just stay home all the time. My life went from awesome to lame with one trip to the bathroom and three pregnancy tests. The first half of pregnancy was so emotional for me. I faced my childhood as an adult, which I had tucked into a closet, and it was scary. It took me into depression, and it costed me a couple of relationships that I thought were rock solid. It's better that it happened earlier rather than later, though. You easily learn who you can trust and rely on in any life-changing event. People show you their true colors, and I started to show mine. Vulnerability can destroy you if you let it, and it can also make you stronger. My doctor had recommended I see a social worker, who then recommended group therapy. Scott, my husband, was remembering how he and his family used to travel all the time and do all these family-friendly things. It was almost alarming that his family always did things. It made me feel like he had a super weird upbringing. I guess reality is everyone's upbringing is a bit different. Fortunately or unfortunately, it becomes all you know about raising kids. Hence why I never wanted to raise a kid. And here I am with this little kickboxer bruising my ribs in my belly, and I was kind of enjoying it. Group therapy didn't really help me get over anything, though. It did, however, provide a bit of perspective. Remember that weird mom club I referenced in the beginning? Yeah, group therapy was totally full of weirdos. At first, when I walked into the therapy room, I thought it was the titty bar. I didn't know what was with this lack of privacy, but these moms were breastfeeding with no shirts on. There were two moms in there that I thought were in the middle of a suckling competition. One mom breastfed her kid four times. I kid you not. The therapy session was an hour long. Four times. Then they opened their mouths and started to talk about their emotions. One woman cries when she does the dishes. Another cries when she makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Everyone was a stay-at-home mom, super overwhelmed with their lifestyle, and I feel like they were bare-breasted feeding just so they could be looked at by someone else. I left group therapy with this in mind, that I am normal as shit and all these people are nuts. Did I mention that four days before we found out we were pregnant, we opened the doors to a brand new startup salon? Yeah, wow. February 4th, we opened. February 8th, we found out we were pregnant. Which, if you haven't caught on, people, it was a major surprise. It was about July, I think, that I came out to our clients and everyone in Chelsea. I waited because I needed people to take me seriously. That, and I was isolating myself. 
And I didn't want 10 months worth of advice and birth stories in the world. Then I told people because I needed people to take me seriously. I was starting to get quite the beer-looking belly. When I did come out, the reaction I got was shocking. What's going to happen with the business? Are you going to continue doing hair? I'm like, okay, Chelsea, being pregnant doesn't mean I'm dead. It does, however, mean I have a lot of shit to do before October, which was when the baby came. I worked my ass off until the day before he came to make sure everything was okay for me to leave my first new baby, which was Devil's Haircut, for a month. That included an intense marketing campaign, event planning, media generating, and hiring the right people. There's a lot of people out there who think that if you're pregnant, you should put your feet up and let yourself eat as many cheeseburgers as possible. And I am not that person. And really, it doesn't matter what you eat, the double chins are coming your way anyways. When we first told my mother-in-law we were pregnant, she told me I might as well get a second dessert because I'm going to get fat anyways. About three weeks before my due date, she used that line again. She must think it's funny. I have to say, nothing anyone ever says will ever come off as funny or as a compliment. I would run into clients at the grocery store when I entered my third trimester, and they always said, you still look good, or you're doing great. And all I heard was, hey, fat ass. It's so obvious you're pregnant, but you look effing fat. You want fries with that shake, Fatty McFatterson? The perspective came from the normal insecure mentality that no matter how thin I am, I am always fat. It's not an eating disorder, just perspective. That perspective changed at about nine months pregnant when I was scrolling through my belly pics on my phone and I came across me at four months pregnant and I thought, oh my God, I used to be so thin. So you get bigger and rounder. Yes, that's a fact of nature when it comes to pregnancy. What I wasn't prepared for was everything else. Here's some TMI for you to consume. My areolas were the size of Denny's silver dollar pancakes. And no, I am not exaggerating. Also, my chest and my neck were covered in moles. I could sit on the couch and grab those little fuckers with my fingernails and rip them off. It's disgusting. My skin looked like a road map, and you could see every bright blue vein in my body paired with every bright purple stretch mark, and it looks like you're in New York City. Also, you get gassy, and you go number two like three times a day. How hot is that? That being said, invest in a good romance novel. Your sex life is about to plummet. It's not that he thinks you're ugly, because you most definitely are not. It's just that you are no longer sexy. Your body used to be used as a utility, and really your body is not there for him anymore. It's there for the little alien inside of you. But don't worry, it'll all go back to normal. That, or you never really did care about how big your hips were or anything like that. How else do people have second and third children with the same dude? <laughs> I have been blessed with probably the easiest pregnancy known to man. And still, I didn't enjoy it. My doctor's appointments had all been normal. My, home, my hormones balanced. I stayed in shape. I hadn't had any pain or difficulties with anything. Which leads me to believe anybody who says they love being pregnant are big fat liars or psychopaths. Here's the deal, though. You don't have to love being pregnant in order to be a good mom. 
You don't have to own a diaper genie in order to be a good mom. And get this, you can still be a good businesswoman and be a good mom. It's like the second you go public with your pregnancy, your pregnancy becomes public property. People want to touch you and ask you about your cervix and your uterus. People give you their opinions on everything and shame you quite openly about your decisions, especially if you stray from the norm. I planned on having a natural drug-free birth, and one lady said to me, oh, shut up and take the drugs. It's not like you get a fucking trophy. Uh, hi, I hate you. My plan to have a drug-free pregnancy was not for a trophy. It's because I had local anesthesia before, and it gives me horrible migraines for two days. My migraines are very similar to strokes. I really don't want to be stroking out the first couple days of my son's life. There's no amount of pain that can talk me into thinking that that is a good idea. You can be a good mom your own way. Carol Brady and the Stepford Wives are not anyone that I look up to. I'm more of a Morticia Adams. I think she's a good mom. Maleficent also came around in her self-titled movie. Now let's talk about gifts. The gift of embellishment. People only tell you the most dramatic stories because it's a story that gives them attention. A 10-pound baby with a natural labor, being in labor for 38 hours, getting five doses of Pitocin and having the worst contractions of your life, having the baby five weeks early, having the baby three weeks late. Everyone has the most extreme pregnancy ever. But don't be freaked out. It's probably mostly bullshit. Seriously. And the gift of friendship. I didn't ever want a baby shower. I wasn't going to register for a bunch of shit that I don't need. I have never had a baby. I don't know what I need. People told me having a baby is really expensive. You need so much stuff. And I'm not the type of person to tell that to my friends. Hey, I'm having a baby. And I need you to buy me stuff. That's pretty much how I feel like a registry is. My friends Sandy and Susan decided to give me a baby shower. And you know what? It was okay. We did a lot of things for the baby, which was cool. But most importantly, after the baby shower, I realized that it's more about friends getting together to support you and honor what you're doing. That being said, here's what happened with me internally. All of my friends came together in different ways, wanting to show their support, give me gifts, ask me how I was doing. They shared their experiences with me and gave me pointers for ways to manage the entire experience. I realize that I have been a huge asshole to all of my friends who have kids. I thought when this pregnancy would be over with, I'd have a beautiful kid, and at the end of it, zero friends. I have to say, I am so sorry I ever left anyone high and dry. It was a, a reflection of my own maturity level, and I'm very grateful to have the people in my life that I do now. I'm a changed woman with an appreciation for the pregnant woman, as long as the pregnancy doesn't turn you into a freak and you don't turn into a freak mom. Let's talk about the gift of love. I don't know what or how or who I would be if I had to do this all by myself. I have to say that my husband had been my rock through the whole experience. Pregnancy exposed me. It exposed my weaknesses, my vulnerabilities, and my emotions. It scared the shit out of me. Scott had walked me through every single challenge that had presented itself to me, physically and emotionally. He went out of his way to stand in the lube aisle to buy me the right stretch marks cream. 
He taped up my back when I had sciatic nerve issues. He cried with me, and he helped me see things from different perspectives. I know that I wouldn't do this without him. I know that I wouldn't do this without him. There are women out there who have to do this alone or with a less supportive partner. I couldn't imagine. So the home stretch. At the University of Michigan in the OB-GYN department, the only people you deal with are residents. I don't know if they get points for how many procedures they can do on you, or maybe some are more eager than others, but their experience mixed with cockiness is not anything I want to deal with again. As much experience in OB as they may have, it's completely evident that many have no social skills, empathy, or the ability to communicate to someone a week overdue. And certainly none of them have ever been through childbirth themselves. Natural birth is almost foreign to them, or maybe it's offensive. It's like their job is to intervene. They look at the statistics, look at the tools they have and the medications and see how they can fix whatever the issue is immediately. At 40 weeks and four days, the resident wanted to schedule an induction for three days later. She checked me for dilation. I was at zero centimeters. I asked her if maybe they got the due date wrong. She looked at the computer and said, no, the computer says October 7th. Like, okay, computer, you know my body better than I do. There must be something wrong with my cervix. After she told me about the balloon they can put in me to dilate me and the pills I can put in my vagina, all the IVs and medications they can pump me full of, none of it sounded good to me. Then the pressure started. Well, we need you to sign this piece of paper that says you refuse to have an induction and that you are well aware that you are putting your baby in danger. Wow, those scare tactics are incredible. No one wants to be a bad mom, right? I got the bad mom talk when I said I didn't want a flu shot, then I caved. I'm glad I witnessed their manipulative ways then. They guilt you and make you feel stupid like you know nothing and they know everything. It's like this tower of statistics leaning over you and you feel like they're almost hoping you have a stillborn so that they can feel correct. I don't even want to go back to the doctor. I'd rather have a kid in the barn next door to have my neighbor deliver him, like he delivers horses. I trust him more than those pricks. It's hard when your husband loves Western medicine and believes all statistics are applicable to you. He wanted an induction. I can't wrap my brain around it. It didn't seem right to me even a little bit. The guilt I would feel if something went wrong with our baby because I didn't follow my heart, I just couldn't bear. This is the first decision I made as a mom, and it goes against the grain. My due date was October 7th, 2016. Every day that passed, I started to doubt that I was even pregnant. That, I just got really fat from eating Moose Tracks ice cream every day for the last six months. What if that was true? And every kick and flutter I felt was horrible indigestion because I am nearly lactose intolerant. Did I convince myself I was pregnant? I took a pregnancy test on October 12th just to make sure. Positive. This test was from the same batch of pregnancy tests I took nine months ago. What if they're all contaminated? I thought about buying one of the different brands at CVS. Then Scott told me to relax. I am pregnant, he promised. The morning of October 13th, I started to feel different. So different that it woke me up at about 3.30, again at 4.30, 6 o'clock, and finally 8 o'clock. It felt like I was about to start the worst period of my life. 
I remembered people telling me that if I could sleep through it, then it's not labor. Well, I slept through whatever it was in increments. Must not be labor. Scott called into work anyways. I think he was tired and just needed a day off. We ate breakfast. I cleaned a little just in case. I refused to pack just because I knew I was never going to have this baby. I almost cuddled up to a pint of ice cream, but I decided I needed to start losing weight, so I skipped it. I started to feel small contractions, literally just a tightening of the abs. I remember thinking, this isn't so bad. It can't be labor. We walked around the yard a lot. We called the hospital around 4 o'clock and said that I think I'm in labor. Did my water break? No. Nurse said I could come in if I want. I told her I wanted to be drug-free. She said, okay, just stay home as long as you can then. Challenge accepted. It was about 6.30 p.m. now. My contractions were about 30 seconds long, two minutes apart. The books and the docs say to wait till your contractions are 60 seconds long, three to four minutes apart. We called the nurse. She seemed confused, but my contractions weren't long enough yet, said I should eat some dinner and stay home as long as I can. By this time, the contractions were taking my breath away when I spoke. Still not unbearable, but close. At seven, we decided to make our way to the hospital. I packed books, puzzles, my iPad, movies, all kind of clothes, my blow dryer, curling irons, snacks, stuffed animals, literally everything I would need if I planned on getting all dressed up to go camping for a week. I had a giant suitcase and a duffel bag. Scott just had a change of clothes and a toothbrush in his Transformers bag. We got to the hospital and I'm a whopping six centimeters dilated. The nurse said the first six centimeters are the hardest and we are in the home stretch. It's more than halfway over and we have so much to look forward to. My blood pressure was great. All the tests they ran looked perfect. I was well on my way to a drug-free birth. We got to the room and I changed into my bathing suit top so I could sit in the birthing tub. I heard that laboring in the tub provided almost just as much pain relief as an epidural. Oh my God. So there I was, sitting in gross bath water, hot and sweaty, having contractions that I still felt 100%, except I'm sitting down on a rubber mat in the bathtub. I couldn't breathe. I had to get out of that nasty tub. I walked around the room. The nurse is feeding me popsicles and crackers and juice. Our nurse was amazing. She was so supportive and helpful and sweet. She laughed at my jokes and even joked along with me. We had a bunch of residents in and out of the room. One guy, I don't know his real name, but he looked just like Justin Long, so I called him Justin. He was keeping an eye on me. Super nice guy, young. Clearly, this was one of his first births. My contractions were now almost knocking me off my feet. Scott would hold on to me while they passed, and I just kept focusing on my breathing, zeroing in on the goal and pushing forward. I was able to maintain a sense of humor through the whole thing, making the doctors and nurses laugh. It created a much calmer environment for everyone, I think. It's like 11 p.m. and I'm 8 centimeters. Okay, so now I'm getting impatient. And I am in pain. So much pain. And all of a sudden, I feel Oliver. I tell Justin, hey, I think he's coming out. And Justin says, no, he's not. It doesn't work like that. But I'll check anyways. He takes a peek, jumps back, and exclaims, oh my god, he's coming out. And he runs out to the lead resident. When he left, I giggled, and I told the nurse and Scott I knew he was coming out. It's like the same feeling you get when your tampon is falling out after being oversaturated, but the tampon instead is the size of a softball. 
the lead resident arrives, who happens to be the same resident who suggested I see a social worker. They start monitoring me and helping me get rhythm with my contractions. I start delivery on my side, but it takes a couple of contractions to sync up contracting, breathing, and pushing. When I finally get rhythm, Oliver Scott McClellan made his debut in just two pushes. Delivery took a total of 10 minutes, and he was born at 2.04 on October 14, 2016. I remember his cry. It was the strangest, most amazing thing I've ever heard. They laid him on my chest, and he immediately stopped crying and touched my face. It was time for me to feed him. He latched on right away and fell asleep, boob in mouth, and in the meantime, the doctors were stitching me up. Then I needed to empty my bladder. I think this was the worst part, only because I wanted everything to be over and I wanted sleep and no more pain. They had to insert a catheter. That sucked. But we got it over with and we went off to our room to bed with baby Oliver by my side. We stayed in the hospital the next day for half of a day after that. I needed to begin healing. Luckily, I had full control over my bladder. I was bleeding a lot, though. Scott was learning from the nurses how to take care of a baby. They showed him how to change a diaper, how to bathe him, how to swaddle him. Scott would then teach me the next week while he was off of work. I would feed Oliver until he fell asleep on me, in which case I would also be sleeping. My friend Bob told me, the day you bring the baby home, that will be the hardest it will ever be, and then it will get easier every day from there. This advice played in my head over and over again with every difficult moment we had. I have to put it out there that the difficult moments weren't ever with Oliver. It was all of the adjustments to life, time, work, our marriage, chores, my body, and throw a little postpartum depression on top of that. We brought Oliver home and all I was able to do was feed him and hold him. I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit normally. It hurt to pee. I was scared to go number two. I was in so much pain and so afraid to do anything wrong. I was upset with Scott because I felt like he wasn't present. We had this dog that we couldn't keep, but he was keeping her at his parents' house and we were trying to find a home for her. He was upset about it. I felt like he cared more about the dog than he did his own son and I started to feel resentment towards him. This was the beginning of a rough road. Here we had the happiest, easiest baby, and Scott and I were seemingly falling apart. Scott was upset that he was doing everything around the house. He cleaned every dish, did all of the laundry, made dinner, did the shopping. He was exhausted, but I felt exhausted too. I was caring for Oliver, afraid to let him out of my sight even for a second. I had fears that the cats would suffocate him, that a tree would blow through the window and crush him, that a car would run off the road and hit our house and take his life from me. I was afraid I wasn't a good enough mother. I wanted to make sure I was playing with him as much as I could, make sure he got every last drop of milk from me, make sure he never sat in a pea-soaked diaper. I put a lot of pressure on myself, and when I started to not be able to produce enough milk, I overcompensated with everything else. Oliver slept better than I did. If I heard him move a little, I would wake up. If I didn't hear him moving at all, I would wake up. I was running ragged, and I felt like I had no control over my life. And while my mind and imagination was sucking the life out of me, Scott was getting so angry with me that I wasn't doing anything. I asked him what he thought of postpartum depression. 
He said, it's a real thing and I didn't have it. That was not how I wanted the conversation to go. Time went on and on and I got worse. My mind constantly wandering and coming up with scenarios of how Oliver will be taken from me. Car crashes, disease, lightning strikes, all seemed like perfectly realistic scenarios. I boycotted the news and Facebook, but I couldn't get away from clients and their horror stories. They would tell me about child abuse as an infant and other horrible things. Why? I don't know. I would hold Oliver and choke back tears, never wanting to put him down. In the meantime, Scott would put Oliver down for a nap and go outside and do yard work. It infuriated me and made my anxiety worse. Finally, my salon manager came to the house to talk to Scott about me as I was losing it at the salon. She asked him if he thought I had postpartum depression. Again, he said, no way. It wasn't until one night when Oliver was about four months old that I made a bottle of milk and I spilled it everywhere. I burst it into tears and I couldn't contain myself. I just held Oliver and I cried. And Scott looked at me with wide eyes and concern. Finally, he started to believe that I had postpartum depression. I realized that with postpartum, you can enter it alone, but you have to come out of it together. It feels like a chemical imbalance with no end in sight. But as soon as Scott was like, yes, you have a problem, let's work on it, that I started to feel better. Finally, when Oliver was about six months old, I took him to the grocery store. It was horrible, but I did it. He was tired and hungry and therefore super fussy, but I was so proud of myself. It was such an adjustment having a child especially when we never really expected it and only had nine months to prepare for it. It took about two full years for me to come out of postpartum depression. And today we have a beautiful, healthy three-year-old who loves Star Wars and superheroes and music. And we're forever learning how to coexist. But I love our family. This Christmas is going to be so fun and every day is so full of snuggles. I'm so incredibly grateful. Thank you all so much for listening and for your support. I'm excited to be back in February of 2020. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Radioactive Chelsea. Sign up at our website, radioactivechelsea.com, to receive notifications for when the next podcast is released.